Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're going to have recorded. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dallas Step Discussion for Monday night, July 4th. Independence Day of 2016, 240 years ago. 240 years ago. It's hard to believe. Seems like it was just a very few years ago we were celebrating 200 years. But then again, that's a sign of my age, which I am no longer a spring chicken. I'm past the spring chicken Stage. In fact, I've had an awful lot of my feathers plucked out, but such is life. Uh, I want to go ahead and do the disclaimer like we always do on a Monday night and tell everybody that what you hear on this call is not legal advice, never has been, unless we have an attorney that comes on and identifies themselves as an attorney and says that what they're giving you is legal advice, and that's an extreme rarity. So for all practical purposes, we'll say that what you hear on this call is not legal advice. That's why we call this Dallas Step Discussion. We have discussion of debt issues, not necessarily just in Dallas, but uh, anywhere that uh, somebody may be having an issue. The whole idea is education. The whole idea is to bring people together as a community and have people help each other, help learn, help learn to stand up for our rights and deal with the courts properly, understand the statutes properly, because unfortunately there's a lot of people that have a a very difficult time with, uh, with doing that. And of course, that's by design, and the design is Well, we're not going to teach you anything in the schools so that if you ever have a legal issue, you need to go hire a lawyer and pay them a lot of money. And, of course, you you and I both know that lawyers don't work cheap. Some of them work cheaper than others, but uh, they're in the business of uh, making a living, and uh, most of them make a pretty darn good living. That's because they've kind of got a... uh, corner on the market when it comes to legal advice because nobody else can give it so bottom line is here you're going to hear legal discussion of various issues and the statutes but you surely are not going to be hearing any legal advice if you take it as such the mistake is yours but please don't do so Uh, if you hear any discussion about uh, a situation that somebody may have and we say you might want to do this or you want to do that. The context of that remark is nothing more than that's what we would do if we were in a situation similar to yours or possibly in your shoes. Um, And the information that we give out, when I say we, 
I talk about the moderators, Jeff, John, Terry, myself, and uh, so far, uh, the only one of us that's on the call is me tonight, because I know Terry's out of pocket, and uh, uh, Jeff is taking care of some personal issues, and uh, John uh, very likely is busy with his wife down in Florida, so I may be running solo tonight, but... If I say something uh, about you want to do this or that, where does that information come from? Is that from something I just read somewhere in the Internet? It sounded pretty good, so I'll spout it off and say it's fact. No, we don't do that here. Uh, Basically, what we do is uh, give people suggestions on what they might want to do based on our personal experience and our study. You can't have personal experience in everything. Not, no one person has had every experience, obviously. I have not, although I have been a plaintiff in well in excess of 100 federal lawsuits. And I have over 100 federal lawsuits currently going, So, as most of you know. And uh, I've spent a pretty substantial amount of time studying. So, you know, I've got a fairly broad base of knowledge, but does that mean I'm an expert of any type or have all the answers? Oh, my God, no. Not by any stretch of the imagination. So please don't take it as that. Um, If I don't know the answer or one of the other moderators doesn't know the answer to a question, we'll try and suggest a place for you to go to get the information you need. But we're not just going to throw a line of BS out at you because that doesn't serve any good purpose. All it does is create problems in most cases. But you hear an awful lot of that stuff out here. So anyway, um, with all that out of the way, we don't have a lot of people. But uh, the people that we do have, again, welcome to Dallas Death Discussion. As I've said so many times, we're always here. we got more and more people coming on the call as I speak. But uh, the the bottom line, somebody just came in that's making noise. Would you please mute yourself so that I don't get that feedback? Thank you. Uh, We always start with good news, uh, but just in case we have any new people that come on, we have new people coming all the time. Uh, The way TalkShoe works is very simple. You're unmuted when you come on, just like that person that just came on shortly ago, and there was some noise because they weren't muted until they did that themselves. And that's what I ask everybody to do. The way you mute yourself is star six on the keypad in your phone. It's very simple. If you want to unmute yourself to say something, just hit star six again, and that will unmute you. It's a toggling feature. You know, you come and go that way. So uh, that's the bottom line on how the system works. And then to put yourself in the queue to uh, ask a question or make a comment about what we're talking about, that's just star eight. That's very simple. So uh, we always start with good news. We don't have a lot of people tonight. I don't know if anybody has any good news. I really don't have any other than uh, things just keep moving along. Uh, I'm waiting for information on the case I filed uh, recently. I'm waiting for the court to issue a a scheduling order so I can start moving forward with the 26F and uh, the other things. I'm prepared. I have my documents ready, as ready as they can be at this stage. So... You know, you stay up with things. I practice what I preach when it comes to these calls. I do that myself. Um, Is there anybody else on the line that has any good news they want to share tonight? If so, speak up. 
okay, we don't have anybody jumping up real quick, which is not a surprise. It is the 4th of July. It is Independence Day. And that's the most important thing I hope that everybody will take a moment to reflect on is, you know, so many people get lost in the hamburgers, hot dogs, and, you know, all the social events, the barbecues, getting together with friends and family and all that kind of stuff. And they lose sight of what this day actually is. This is Independence Day. It was 240 years ago that we broke free. And isn't it kind of fitting that in this year that the U.K. voted in their Brexit, as it's known, to pull out of the European Union, which has become extremely onerous in its regulatory scheme. And uh, the people there finally got fed up with it. And, of course, isn't that what led to uh, us becoming a, a free nation many years ago? So, you know, the bottom line is uh, it's a celebration of our freedom. And uh, it's not just a day to go have hot dogs and not have to go to work on a Monday. So please uh, take a moment to reflect back on that, and uh, uh, we'll go from there. All right. Uh, I don't know if anybody's going to have any questions tonight, uh, given there's uh, not a lot of people here. But, uh, again, I always make sure I'm here so that if somebody does have an issue, because, you know, these issues with the courts and stuff, they, they don't go, oh, well, you know, the uh, 4th of July is coming. We'll give you a couple weeks off or whatever. No, that doesn't happen. Uh, so uh, people are in a position where they have to uh, deal with things. So that's why we're here. But... Um, if we don't have people with questions, I've got some uh, information that I that I want to put out. I have a book that I recently acquired, and uh, I've I found it to be a very very fascinating read, uh, an extremely fascinating read actually, because of the information that uh, is in it that I haven't found in a uh, uh, a publication similar to this uh, in the past. And it, to, to be honest with you, I haven't gone looking for it, but uh, I haven't found it either. And uh, it, it's really quite interesting when you get into it and learn some of these facts. And some of this is, is facts that you know are not going to relate to what you're doing litigation-wise, but they can definitely uh, be something that you're, you may find yourself in a position to, uh, to be dealing with uh, in, as far as needing the knowledge. This book that I got, and I would recommend that if people have an opportunity that they get a copy of this. If you're you know, involved in litigation doing things, I would highly suggest you, uh, you pick up a copy of this. I found that you know, I've only touched base on the first part of it incredibly helpful to me, even with the uh, knowledge base that I have. The name of this is Legal Research and Writing for Paralegals. Now, I'm not a paralegal. don't have any intention of becoming a paralegal. But this is uh, from the Aspen College series. And uh, the author is Deborah Beauchow, B-O-U-C-H-O-U-X. 
Again, it's legal research and writing for paralegals. And I have the sixth edition. There is a newer edition. I found this on Amazon. You can get it there. It's uh, an incredibly insightful book. But uh, some information that uh, I, I found, I'm just going to hit on some tidbits and certain things in here for uh, uh, lack of other subject matter. If anybody has a question, that's what we're here for. That's uh, the overriding thing. Uh, please raise your hands and uh, we will take the questions. And in fact, we have somebody that raised their hand and uh, I'll go ahead and uh, take this question here before we go any further on this and uh, talk about the information in the book. And we're going to go to Massachusetts. You have been unmuted. Go ahead. Hi, Dave. Good evening. Hi, Elair. How are you? Still here. Believe it or hey, not. I'm glad I'm not talking <laughs> to a ghost. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. This is my favorite expression. Yep, I know. <laughs> is Terry around? No, Terry is not on the call tonight. Terry uh, is uh, out in the woods, actually. She is... Uh, I remember. I remember uh, out with her family on a family outing, and uh, she will be back for her call on Wednesday. But uh, yeah, can't she's not yeah. here. Mm -hmm. you, yep. you don't know anything about the... Uh, 1681T, when they say the uh, uh, FCRA trumps the state uh, law. Uh, I'm not real FCRA. familiar with the specifics yeah. of it. No, uh, I haven't delved into into that um, specifically. Um, sorry. So, okay, I'm going to wait for Perry on Wednesday. Yeah. What, Wednesday. I, I mean, you were – I'm just curious as to what your uh, inquiry is. Well, it's the uh, – I have a motion to dismiss, to answer, and uh, one of the issues that he raises, the guy raises, that you cannot claim state uh, state consumer protection laws for uh, 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 1681 S2B because it's trumped by uh, federal law. So FCRA doesn't let Massachusetts law to, to be claimed on a, a complaint because – 1681T says that, which is a little, uh, you know, blurry. It's not really clean. And I was reading some opinions from other lawyers. Well, you can bring a, a, a claim under the FCRA under S2B. I did, yeah. but he he's removing the state part. That's his purpose is to just. Oh, okay. Move. Yeah, yeah. He, just to he, you made state law claims under. Yeah, I did both. The, I did both. Oh, okay. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He wants not, to remove one of them. Yeah, well, I can so. understand why he's doing that, and I believe he's. You're going to find he's right. That's just uh, my top of the top of the head he, analysis of it. Yeah. Uh, from yeah, what what I found some articles about this purpose from uh, a law school and it sounds more that the, it preempts uh, the it preempts the state law against the uh, CRAs not right. uh, the furnishers yeah. and it makes sense because if uh, if you know if that happens uh, you know the three credit rating companies really do oh, they uh, go they go crazy dealing yeah. with individual state laws from right. 50 yeah. states yeah mm -hmm. it makes sense Right. But a uh, yeah, a furnisher then is a different story. Yeah, well, furnishers. I, uh, I believe there is uh, there is a difference there because they are obviously not a, a CRA. Yeah, um, I'll I'll try to write something about like this, and hopefully uh, 
Terry will be on the same page. Yeah, she should be on her call on Wednesday night. She said she would be back in time for that, so that would be a good time to ask her, and I know she's delved into that, so she should be able to give you a, a definitive answer on that. All right, Dave. Thank you very much. I'll be listening on my computer. Okay. All righty. Thank right. you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, um, now to go back, uh, and again, uh, if anybody uh, comes on, they have uh, good news. We always want to hear good news. And uh, if you have a question on anything, by all means, step up. Uh, if people are, are offline, uh, all you got to do is call 724-744-7444. And put the pin 54318 in, and you've got us. Now, we've got somebody from Southern California that has raised their hand. So let's go to Southern California. You are unmuted. Hi. Hi there. I'm I'm traveling, so I might be kind of loud. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Not much I can do, but I figured what the heck, call in and in between here. Um. I was just curious. I have a question because I had something happen, um, which I had spoke to you about before. Um, I have a case where no defendant has responded, and it's past the timeline, but I chose to reserve them twice anyway, and I had done that. So that time period is also coming up. And I had the order from the court to, and I forgot what it's called, to to send in the joint status conference. And, of course, if there's right. no other party, then there was nobody to do. So I took your advice, which is what I was going to do anyway, and um, explained that. But I also yeah. sent in the status report to them with my side completed and everything done. And in that, in the heading of it, you know, I mentioned the situation of what was happening and that I was reserving and everything. And when I... I made one mistake, which was in my district, and it didn't in the local rules, and that this, this other district, it doesn't state to, you know, to file it on the record or to email it to the judge's chambers, which is normally what I was used to doing. So I emailed it to their chambers um, at the email address that was provided, you know, by the court. Well, the next day, the next day, I get a naughty notice um, order saying, you know, uh, the parties um, submit a show cause why they shouldn't be sanctioned, you know, for not completing the thing. And I'm confused for one because I sent that document in, but at the second time I thought, okay, after a while it went on, I thought, well, they didn't get it. So obviously I figured it out. And I called the court and talked to them and explained the issue. And she was gracious and said, you know, I would just let them know that and, and, you know, resubmit it. So that's what I did is I made a notice on there of what I did um, and I submitted it on the docket, um, and I got a another order the next day, and it's saying that it's referring it to a magistrate, you know, for the pretrial, um, any dispositive motions that would be filed. But what I don't know is I know in certain districts, the magistrate hears everything, you know, for all the pretrial stuff until you get up to the actual trial or any dispositive motions, and then the judge, you know, who's on the case actually uh, writes the orders on it, not the magistrate. So right. if you do not um, 
what do you call it, consent to the magistrate, then this that's what I don't know is, is do I, because you I have haven't put consen- in my report. Yeah, you, you have to consent to the magistrate judge. Okay, but I already put in that in that um, status report that I do not, and I've never filled out any of the paperwork to do that. So I don't know if this means he gave me the code for it, which was um, rule Federal Rule 72, um, and then also 28 USC 636, which I have pulled up, and um, the 70. Rule 72 just states um, non-dispositive matters when a pretrial matter not dispositive of a party's claim or defense is referred to a magistrate judge to, he- judge to hear and decide. The magistrate judge must promptly conduct the required proceeding and when, the, when appropriate issue a written order stating the decision. And it says a party may serve and file an objection within 14 days. So... I never consented to that. Obviously, you get the paperwork. I never consented. And also in my status report, I stated, you know, that I do not agree to a magistrate. Well, the, um, when you say you, you don't agree to a magistrate judge, for, that's for the trial and dispositive motions. But that doesn't mean a magistrate judge can't hear anything. The right. Magistrate judges can take on. care of it. Right. That's the magistrate judges can take care of the lower level stuff as you approach trial. Absolutely. Okay, because then the 28 U.S.C. 636 states, um, notwithstanding any provision of law to the contrary, a judge may designate a magistrate to hear and determine any pretrial matters pending before the court except for a motion for injunction, um, judgment on the pleading, summary judgment, dismissal, or quash. Um, I'm trying to think here. I'm kind of paraphrased because it's a little bit long. And that's, you know, again, I just wanted to get clear on that. Yeah, and I understand yeah. the magistrate handles certain parts of it, but it does state in the Southern Rule 72 that he can handle the dispositive mat, um, motions. And in my case, I will be filing a uh, entry of default because, you know, they haven't responded twice. Well, yeah, don't don't worry about that. I mean, uh, okay. in that case, the uh, the magistrate judge could rule on that. And then, actually, when you do that, I believe uh, I, I'm not I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm thinking that they would write their report and recommendation, which would go to be approved by the judge. I'm not absolutely positive on that on a uh, um, uh, on a default. I, I have to go back and look and see yeah. what, what I okay. had on, on the the ones that I had. But uh, you know the your big question is. Can a magistrate judge handle that stuff? The answer is yes. No, I know they can, um, but I guess kind of what you're stating is what I'm thinking too is does this mean that he's kind of passed the whole case off to the magistrate? Because here's what the order stated, um, which is kind of, it says the case is hereby referred to the magistrate judge for pretrial management. All non-dispositive motions are referred to the magistrate for determination according to the 28 U.S.C. 636. And then all case dispositive motions are referred to the magistrate for recommendation according to U.S.C. There you go. Right. And 72. Okay. Right. They write a report and recommendation, which then goes to the full judge for review, and he either says yay or nay. Okay. And then the last paragraph, this one I don't understand what he's saying because it says, um, 
the judge's copy of future filing shall be sent with a transmittal letter addressed to the magistrate so copies can be sent directly to him without delay. I'm on the ECS system, so I don't understand what he means by transmittal letter or, you know what I mean, addressed to I think that's internal. Because that's what he put on there, so I don't... Yeah, I think that's internal. Okay. Okay. Well, I was kind of panicked because I saw things. No, I don't believe that's that's anything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's anything. Well, they're they're wanting to deal with your stuff, you know, PDQ. I mean, when it's coming in, they're they're right on it. Well, obviously, they're hours. paying attention. <laughs> well, hey, they're paying attention to it. That's, okay. You know, that's that's better than having it uh, put up on the shelf and it's like, oh my God, it's been two and a half years and they haven't done anything yet. You know. Oh yeah, and one other key thing that I've noticed is the attorney was on the case before because this is the second amended complaint. And then when I did the second amended complaint, and obviously that was sent out, you know, in the summons, and I resummoned everybody because there was new parties and everything, nobody's responded. Well, then I called the court, and on the docket it says not admitted, and the court verified that. But now when all these orders are sent out, his name is on it, meaning he's getting a copy of everything through the ECF. So I'm confused. Is he admitted? Is he not admitted? Why is his name, in, you know, why is he getting copies? I, of, I don't know. You, you can have to talk to the, the court about that. Okay. I don't know. So call the clerk and ask them to. Yeah, I just inquire with the clerk on that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Sounds good then. Okay. So I think I'm set on that then. Thank you. Okay. All righty. You're welcome. Have a wonderful rest of the day on the 4th of July, Independence Day. All right. Okay, let's see. We've had uh, a couple other people join us here, and I just want to keep track of uh, that stuff. All right. Now, if again, if anybody has questions or comments, uh, obviously that's why we're here, and uh, all you got to do is hit star eight. That'll uh, put your hand up in the queue, and uh, I'll be able to monitor that. I'm keeping my eye on uh, the uh, Treasury bond futures market right at the moment because I'm also trading while we're doing this thing tonight. All right, now, this. Hello? Oh, I was going to ask you one other thing that I just popped up in my head. (laughs) Um. Do you, I'm curious, in your court, do you have the the Dondi case that they were for a lot of info on? A Dondi case? I have no idea. Yeah, they, they always say that, um, i trying to think what you call that. It's a case that is, they use as reference a lot, meaning that when you get your case and everything, they they make you read that. Like, do you agree to this case? No. In certain no. sightings in I've it? Never, no, I've okay. never even heard of it. Okay, just curious. No, no, we don't we don't deal with anything like that. After all, you're you're in that other land, you know, California. Unfortunately, I mean, it's no, like, oh, no, the, the the district by you is what I'm saying. The northern. No, uh, even uh, believe me, there's a difference, uh, a major <laughs> difference between the northern district of Texas and the eastern district where I am. Believe me, there okay. is a huge difference in these districts. 
and uh, it's it's just a matter of you know you you got to look at each one. The Northern District is really pretty odd, to be honest with you. I mean, it just is compared to uh, the other things. They're uh, they're quite anti pro se, and uh, they uh, uh, they're they've just got some rather interesting rules. <laughs> like uh they you know they've got uh, attorneys have to be within uh uh 50 miles of the court. Uh they they've got to show up for hearings. I mean, you know, I mean the, we've got uh, attorneys like with me in the Eastern District, we've got attorneys from Houston to represent and you know they can do phone conferences and everything. In the northern district, um, they uh, they actually have to uh, be within 50 miles. I mean, there it, there's just a bunch of oddball uh, rules and regulations. But it is what it is, you know. I mean, that's sure. uh, there's anything we can uh, we can do about it. I'm I'm very thankful I'm in the eastern district because things here are pretty uh, simple in relation to the uh, the sister district northern. So, what what is that considered, Denton? Uh, Collin County is in uh, uh, where I am. I'm uh, Collin County is the one that uh, adjacent to Dallas County to the north. I uh, technically so am sitting in Dallas County, but my address is Collin County, so I'm in the Eastern District just because of that. So where is the the actual court? What is the city? It's in the, Dallas. It is in. Oh, uh, I see. Uh, okay. The now you talking my court or? Yeah, your your. Oh, court. my court is uh, there's a courthouse. The uh, Sherman district that I'm in is uh, in Sherman, which is about 60 miles north of here. It's a small uh, community up toward the uh, uh, Oklahoma line, but they do yeah. have a new courthouse that was built about uh, eight years ago in Plano. So that's the one I go. It's about eight and a half miles for me to, to go to that. Uh, Northern district is downtown Dallas, and I'm glad <laughs> I don't have to go down there because that's a pain in the neck. Yeah, I know in this district they um, have cases from Fort Worth and from Dallas. Like they always ask you for even for the judge, it's like it's split. So it is it is interesting. Huh. Wow. Very very interesting. Well, yeah, it's the Northern District is a whole different animal. The uh, Eastern District uh, is the uh, top district in the country, to my knowledge, uh, in patent litigation, intellectual property and stuff. They're very, very big. So, hmm. anyway, okay. does that, that answer right. your questions? Yes, sir. Thank you. All righty, thank you. Okay, and I'm gonna mute you so that I've got you uh, off the board there. So I gotta unmute you. There we go. Okay, now we're good. All right. Again tonight, we've got a thin crowd because it is the Fourth of July. It is Independence Day, everybody. So uh, I'm going to uh, be providing a little bit of information out of a book that uh, I got, and I was mentioning it earlier. I'll mention it one more time. Legal Research and Writing for Paralegals. And uh, it's a, a very, very interesting book. Uh, it's a very uh, informative book. Very, very informative. Uh, and I'm going to just hop from a... Uh, one thing to another, just because I'm not just going to sit here and read certain things. Uh, I did some highlighting on some things that uh, I thought would be uh, very uh, relevant to what we do education-wise. And, of course, you know, we're always trying to uh, educate ourselves. 
and uh, I'm getting this alert here, and I'm going to change that so that I'm not getting any more alerts. So we're going to move that. Okay. All right. Um, they make a, there's a little box in here uh, where uh, she's has some information on, on practice tips. Uh, Black's Law Dictionary has an appendix in it. Uh, um, and as she writes here, in the beginning of your legal career, you may become confused by the numerous abbreviations used for legal books, case reports, and journals. To determine the meaning of abbreviations such as ALA, period, uh, for Alabama reports, or C, J, C period, J period, S period, for corpus juris secundum, check appendix A in Black's Law Dictionary, ninth edition. Well, you can go back in the other ones. I'm sure it's in there, too. But there's a, a list of extensive abbreviations commonly used in law. And you'll get to, you'll get to know this stuff. But if you want to uh, reference any of that, keep in mind that Jesse has copies of uh, all the various editions of Black's Law as part of the legal library on the website. So that's a, a great thing to keep in mind and uh, know that you've got available to you. Now, um, you know, the concept of uh, following previous cases or precedents is called uh, stare decisis. That's a fun one to pronounce, which is a Latin phrase meaning to stand by things decided. You know, we, we talk about common law, and of course, you know, there's been all sorts of talk about common law and statutory law and, you know, what law do we use and what law do we, do we not use. And uh, it really comes down to what the judge says. I mean, literally. Okay. You've, those of you that have been with us for a while know that I read... Uh, woe unto you lawyers and a number of months back which is about the use of words in the legal profession and how the words are used to twist fold, basically fold, spindle, and mutilate things but in statutory construction the law is not always what the statute says but rather what a judge says it means well, now haven't we talked about that? The law is whatever any judge or tribunal of judges says it is in a given case. You know, there's a lot of people that have the idea that all you have to do is uh, just go and get a book off the shelf and it tells you exactly what the law is. Well, you know, obviously that's not really the case because... Uh, we work on precedents. The uh, precedents are set by who? By the judges that make the rulings on the various cases. And uh, the the big thing with that.
Oh, now that was interesting. That was interesting. That's the second time in the last couple of weeks that I got dumped off the call. I just talked to you, just flat disconnected me, and they didn't even have the courtesy to say goodbye. So, uh, as I was saying, the uh, the situation you've got with the courts is what is law? Law is what is decided by who? It's decided by the judges. And it can be a judge at the circuit level. It can be a tribunal of judges, a group of judges, like in a circuit court, like where Terry was in the 11th Circuit here recently. And uh, and then, of course, you have the uh, Supreme Court. Now, uh, something about the uh, Supreme Court, many interesting traditions endure in the court. The justices are seated at the bench by seniority. This is something I never knew. It's not necessarily something you're going to use in, in your cases or anything, but in fact, you won't use it. But the chief justice occupies the center seat, and the most senior associate justice sits to his right. Now, think about this. If you're ever trying to figure out, if you look at a picture of the Supreme Court justices, who's who, you know, who's who's been there the longest, who isn't, you know, because we we don't remember who got on there when. The next most senior associate sits to his left, and this procedure continues with the newest member of the court occupying the chair at the extreme right, as seen by one facing the bench. Formal pictures of the justices also reflect the seniority arrangement. So when whenever you look, just think about the most senior, you know, the chief justice sits in the center, and then the most senior associate sits on the right. And then the one to his left is the next most senior. Then it alternates left, right, left, right, left, right, left. So the most senior are the ones closest to the Supreme Court justice, which I I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting because I never really realized um, that there was any particular order or organization as to, you know, where where they sit in the picture. Obviously, everything with the courts is very structured. All right. Now, something else. And this is this is interesting because, you know, we, we look at Supreme Court decisions and, you know, people talk about, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I might just go ahead and appeal this to the Supreme Court. Approximately 8,000 petitions for certiorari are filed with the United States Supreme Court each year. 8,000. And the justices typically grant cert in fewer than 100. Full written opinions are issued in about 75 of those cases, and the remaining cases are disposed of without oral argument or formal written opinions. So the Supreme Court will issue an opinion on... 75 out of approximately 8,000 opinions in any given year. Now, that's that's staggering for somebody to think that they're going to take something to the Supreme Court and they're going to get it heard. All I can say is, good luck. 
United States Supreme Court reverses cases from the United States Courts of Appeal approximately 75% of the time. Three-quarters of the cases they reverse. In its 2008 term, the Supreme Court reversed 81% of the cases it received from the Ninth Circuit. 11% of the cases it received from the Second Circuit and 73% of the cases it received from the state courts. Okay, so the Second Circuit must have been doing pretty good because only 11% were reversed. The uh, Ninth Circuit in California, 81%. Well, evidently, they, they have a credibility problem with the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, it's, it's, it, to me, it's just amazing to uh, start running into some of these statistics. And there, there are some other markings, and I'll be darned if I can find them in here, because I did do some markings with a marker and evidently it must be the light that I have here is making it really hard for me to find where I did this with this highlighting because I use a fluorescent highlighter in this. Uh, and I, I do want to f- find several of these things because I was going to pass on this information. There's just, there's just so much information in this book, it's just amazing. I I sit down and I start reading this thing, and uh, as many of you know, I have uh, problems with my eyes. My eyes have uh, deteriorated, and uh, I'm going to be going to the uh, eye doctor and getting an exam here within the next week to 10 days, hopefully. And uh, I'm going to try and get some of that strain on my eyes relieved by doing that. Uh, Something else, until William H. Rehnquist became Chief Justice, the caseload of the U.S. Supreme Court increased dramatically each year. In just the nine-year period between 1994 and 2003, the number of cases appealed in the federal system grew by more than 20%, uh, from 94 to 03, 10-year period there grew by more than 20%. In recent years, however, the court has been reducing its docket and producing far fewer opinions. Hmm. Does this mean that they're having to spend more time considering new ones or they just don't want to work as hard? I don't know. During the 1980s, the court routinely decided roughly 150 cases per term. In its 2008-9 term, the court decided only 79, almost half of what it had decided earlier. Uh, very, very interesting how they have cut down on the number of cases that that they're hearing and they're issuing uh, decisions on. But uh, looking here, I still don't see anybody with any Questions. If anybody's got questions about any of this, uh, some other things. Uh, this is this is almost scary here. This is some of the Supreme Court facts. Uh, 
Chief Justice John Roberts Jr.'s replacement of Chief Justice Rehnquist was the first time that a Chief Justice's former law clerk succeeded him. That was very interesting. Now here's something that's a little bit sickening. A 2010 poll by Find Law revealed that two-thirds of Americans cannot name any of the justices of the United States Supreme Court. Now, does that surprise anybody here? In 2010, two-thirds of Americans could not name any of the justices. Now, here's something that's really kind of inane, but uh, in 2005, due to financial reasons, the Supreme Court closed its barber shop, which had been in use since the 1940s. Jeez. According to Justice Joseph Story, on rainy days, the early justices would enliven case conferences with wine, On other days, even if the sun was shining, Chief Justice John Marshall would order wine anyway, saying, our jurisdiction is so vast that it must be raining somewhere. Boy, those are some interesting words. (laughs) Oh, boy, I'll tell you. Uh... Harlan Fisk Stone, appointed Chief Justice in 1941, a former farm boy, once said, had I realized what I'd be doing later in my career, I'd have hung on to that pitchfork. (laughs) Boy. Man, oh man, oh man. Now I tell you, this book has got just a a tremendous amount of information in it. There's cyber sites in here. There's a whole listing of various sites where you can get information. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of resources mentioned in here. Um, A little bit about uh, how our laws come into be. There are several steps in the enactment of legislation. Uh, We'll assume the legislation is originating in the House because most legislation does originate in the House. Okay, first of all, a bill which is proposed law is introduced by its sponsor in Congress by being handed to the clerk of the House or by being placed in a wooden box called the hopper. And, of course, you know, some of you may think, well, who cares about this? Well, you know, it's kind of good to understand a little bit of history of how these laws that we deal with came into being in the first place. I mean, you know, what what is the procedure uh, is this something you're going to use in writing a pleading? No. Is it helping you understand a little better? And, and we're going to get into some things here where uh, there um, will be some comments here about why it's important to understand some of this stuff. Okay, the bill is numbered. If the bill originated in the House, it will be labeled H.R., House Resolution, obviously. Those bills introduced in the Senate are labeled S. Who'd have thought? Okay. Example, H.R. 412 from the first session of the 108th Congress to enhance the operation of the Amber Alert Communications Network in order to facilitate the recovery of abducted children to provide for enhanced notification on the highway, so on and so forth. And then there is S-1160 from the first session of the 110th Congress, a bill to ensure an abundant and affordable supply of highly nutritious fruits, vegetables, blah, blah, blah. The numbering of the bills is always sequential. That is, H.R. 41 indicates the 
41st bill introduced in a particular congressional session. Wow, what a surprise. Okay, the bill is now printed in slip form as an individual pamphlet by the government printing office and given to each representative and sent to the appropriate committee. For example, if the bill deals with the military, it will be referred to the House or Senate Armed Services Committee. If it involves a judiciary, it will be referred to the House or Senate Judiciary Committee. This all makes sense, you know. The House has 20 permanent or standing committees, and the Senate has 16. Additionally, several select com- uh, committees exist, such as the Senate Select Committee on Ethics. Oh. Well, that's the one that they, if it's an ethics committee, it's obvious that they've been spending uh, many years in the closets because they don't know anything about ethics. Much of the work involved in enacting federal legislation is done by these committees or by their subcommittees. Until 1975, Speaker of the House could refer a bill to only one committee. In modern practice, the Speaker may refer an introduced bill to multiple committees for consideration of those provisions of the bill within the jurisdiction of each committee concerned. So I can see why that would speed things up. Instead of having everybody take their turn down the line, Multiple committees can be working on this legislation at at the same time. Okay, now generally the speaker must designate a primary committee of jurisdiction on bills referred to multiple committees. The committee will now place the bill on its calendar. The uh, committee's initial action is usually to request interested agencies of the government to comment upon the proposed legislation. Now, you know, there was uh, just a uh, FDCPA revision bill uh, that was introduced recently. So you can imagine all the stuff that's going to have to go in there and all the people in the special interests in Washington that are going to be in there trying to uh, bend somebody's ear on uh, getting their two cents worth in, especially the industry, the debt collection industry, regarding the FDCPA revisions. Because the revisions proposed in that tighten things up on the debt collection industry a lot. All right, the committee may hold hearings regarding the proposed legislation. Interested parties, lobbyists, experts, and consumer advocates may testify. What a surprise, either voluntarily or by subpoena. Okay, cabinet officers and high-ranking civil and military officials of the government may also testify. Okay, after studying the legislation and holding hearings, the committee will take one of three actions. It will report... Uh, recommend the bill without any revisions. It will report the bill with revisions and modifications, or it may table the bill or fail to take any action on it, which effectively kills the bill. You've all heard uh, at one time or another uh, somebody say, oh, well, that bill was tabled. Well, if you hear somebody say, you know, there's a a bill that's uh, being considered in Congress, if it was tabled, well, forget it. That's not going to come to any uh, conclusion. Uh, the committee will hold a markup session, then issue a written statement uh, calling the report, uh, calling a report which explains the purpose of the bill, wow, the intent of the bill, and why the bill has been approved or modified. I wonder if they did that with the Affordable Care Act, because uh, you know Nancy Pelosi famously said we we have to pass it so we can see what's in it. I just wonder if maybe they got. Their steps a little confused on that one. Okay. The committee will hold a, okay, the markup session, why the bill has been approved or modified. Generally, a section-by-section analysis is given. Well, now, how could that have been done with Obamacare? How could that possibly be done with Obamacare 
if they're saying we have to pass it so we know what's in it. You know, that's kind of, sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? All right. Committee reports are perhaps the most valuable single element of the legislative history of a law. Okay. Committee reports, keep that in mind. They are used by the courts, executive departments, and the public as a source of information regarding the purpose and meaning of the law. Now, this is really important. I'm going to read that again. Committee reports are perhaps the most valuable single element of the legislative history of a law. They are used by the courts, executive departments, and the public as a source of information regarding the purpose and meaning of the law. The discussion that they had. Okay, after the bill has been returned to the chamber in which it originated, it is placed on the calendar, scheduled for a debate on the floor of the House or Senate, bill is introduced there. Although there are no certain limits for the duration of debate in the House, debate in the Senate is usually not subject to any limits. The House Rules Committee may call for the bill to be voted on quickly if it is important or urgent. Now, have we ever seen anything uh, go through real fast? How about the Patriot Act? That was done real quick. Voting occurs after debate typically by electronic voting device. Oh, wow, I wonder if they have back doors and those. Or maybe they have special machines. They don't have to worry about that. After a bill is passed in the chamber in which it originated, it is sent to the other chamber, which will, may pass the bill in its then present form. When a final bill is passed by one chamber, it is called an engrossed bill. More likely, however, the bill will be sent to the appropriate committee for analysis. This committee may also approve the measure, modify it, or table it. In other words, they can kill it anywhere along the line. A committee can kill the bill. A report will be issued by the committee explaining the action taken by it. After the bill is reported out of the committee, if it finally gets its, what makes its way out of there, it will be scheduled for debate and voting in the second chamber. If the bill is passed, the version agreed to by the second chamber is identical to the one passed by the first chamber, it will be sent to the president for signature. Okay. If the versions passed differ, then they got to go to conference and all that. Okay. Uh, it, it's interesting here. The conference is typically made up of senior members. Senior members. In other words, those with the biggest vested interests and the most power in Congress. The conference is typically made up of senior members or conferees of the House and Senate committees that studied the bill, although in recent years junior members of the committee have been appointed as well uh, as other members interested in the measure who were not in the committees. This has led to increased conference sizes, such as the 81 conference on a budget reconciliation bill, which you can just imagine anything on a, a budget in which 250 members of Congress divided into 58 subgroups participated. And we wonder why they can't pass anything out of Washington, D.C. that means anything. The conference may continue for weeks or months as the conferees struggle to harmonize the conflicting versions of the bill. After agreement is finally reached, conferees will prepare a report, and another report, setting forth their conclusions and recommendations. Compromise measure must again be voted on by both the House and Senate. When the reconciled bill has been passed by both House and Senate, it is printed by the government printing office in a process called enrollment. 
and is then certified as correct and signed by the Speaker of the House and the Vice President. Bill is now sent to the President for signature. Okay, and we all know what uh, they do. Once the President has signed the bill, it is referred to as a law or a statute rather than a bill. An act, now this is interesting, an act is a series of statutes related to the same topic, such as the Lanham Act, which consists of numerous statutes all dealing with federal trademark law. If the president fails to take action within 10 days, excluding Sundays while Congress is in session, the bill will become law without a signature. If the Congress adjourns before its 10-day uh, period and the president fails to sign a bill, it will die. Wow, put all that work in and they can just let it die. This is often referred to as the pocket veto. I mean, good grief, people. Uh, you talk about a lack of efficiency in the way things work. All right. When the bill is signed, it is assigned a number in sequential order. Now, we've all heard of public laws. Okay. How does this work? Okay. It's assigned a number in sequential order. For example, Public Law 110-120 would indicate the 120th public law enacted during the 110th Congress. So when you have a number, the first number is the number of the Congress, the 110th Congress. The second number is the public law number that has been enacted during that session. A bill that is not enacted in a particular Congress does not carry over to the next Congress. It must be reproposed in the following Congress if legislation is desired. For example, a Brady bill, so on and so forth. So, you know, you, you don't start a, a law now and, you know, work on it for 14 months and stuff like that. Each session of Congress is uh, an individual deal. And when one session is done... Whatever hasn't been finished, well, you got to start from scratch. Now, how about classification of federal statutes? You guys know that there's classifications of them. After the bill is enacted into law by the president signing it or by the Act of the United States Congress and overriding a veto, uh, it is sent to the archivist of the United States who will classify each law as public or private. That's interesting. The archivist will classify each law as public or private and will direct its publication. Public laws are those that affect the public generally, such as tax laws, laws relating to federal lands, laws relating to bankruptcy and the like. Private laws are those that affect only one person or entity or a small group of persons granting them some special benefit not afforded to the public at large. The most common private laws are those dealing with immigration or naturalization. For instance, those allowing an individual or a family to enter the United States, even though the immigration quota of that country has been met. 
other private laws might deal with forgiveness of the debt owed to the United States or allowance of a claim against the United States government that would ordinarily be barred due to sovereign immunity. That's the principle that government entities are not subject to or immune from certain types of claims. Only a handful of private laws are passed in any congressional session. Interesting. Public laws are those that affect the public generally, such as tax laws, laws relating to federal lands, laws relating to bankruptcy and the like. Private laws are those that affect only one person or entity or a small group of persons granting them some special benefit not afforded to the public at large. Hmm. Bet you didn't know that, and I'll bet I didn't either. And then, of course, there's publication of federal statutes. You've got the United States statutes at large, and you've got slip laws, and you've got United States Code Congressional and Administrative News. You've got United States Law Week. You've got Government Printing Office, the USCS Advanced Pamphlets, Congressional Representatives, the Internet, Lexis, and Westlaw. There's all sorts of things here that they touch on in this. United States Code. Because the organization of the United States statutes at large makes research using the set so difficult, it became readily apparent that a set of books should be developed to eliminate those barriers to efficient research. And see, this, this goes right to what we do. The process of developing a set of books that compiles the currently valid laws on the same subject together with any amendments to those laws is referred to as codification. The first codification of United States statutes at large occurred in the mid-1870s. A second codification or addition followed a few years thereafter, but the Sutter Code in current use originates from 1925 when Congress authorized preparation of the United States Code. You know, 15 U.S.C., 1692, whatever. U.S.C., United States Code. All of the statutes enacted into law and contained in the United States statutes at large were analyzed and categorized by subject matter so at the completion of the project, there were 50 categories or titles of federal statutes. For instance, Title VII contains statutes dealing with agriculture. Title 25 is statutes dealing with Indians. Title 38 contains statutes dealing with veterans' benefits. And Title 50 contains statutes dealing with war and national defense. The 50 titles are further divided into chapters and sections. A citation to any statute in the United States Code indicates the number of the title, the name of the set, the section number, and the year of the code as follows. 42 U.S.C. Section 1396, 2006, as an example. There is so much information in this book, I'm telling you. You got in annotated versions of the United States Code. <coughs> Excuse me, and I'm I'm not going to go into uh, uh, a bunch more of this stuff. I'm going to uh, take and uh, uh, 
make some notes on some of the stuff that I'm going to be uh, presenting in uh, weeks to come because I'm going to go back and I'm going to start doing some education hour uh, and uh, covering some of this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm going to keep it relevant uh, in very large part to the uh, the things that you guys need to know if you're dealing in the legal realm, if you're dealing with these uh, cases and you need to look up law because, after all, this book is about a paralegal and what you need to understand about that. And uh, it's it's really quite fascinating. I'll tell you, uh, I, I look at these kind of uh, things that are presented in here and I'm like, wow. But then, of course, I have an intense interest in this stuff, and uh, my biggest problem is I can't read enough uh, for what I want to be able to learn. You know, it goes into finding parallel cases and uh, how to go about using this and, and what's going to work where and what isn't going to work uh, you know, there's things in here, order of citations in string sites. You know, there's string citing. That's in the blue book, B, uh, B3.5 and Rule 1.4. I mean, this is getting into all the rules, telling you how to cite things properly. And, of course, it's always a good idea to have things cited properly, although when the courts look at your pleadings as a pro se, uh they're going to take into consideration to a degree that you're a pro se and if you don't have things you know, absolutely to the letter according to all these rules, uh, I don't think they're going to uh, bounce your stuff out. Now, if you're very sloppy in, in what you do, uh, obviously you're going to have a lot of problems. But the, the bottom line is you've got to learn <clears throat> how to do things properly when you're writing pleadings, when you're doing research, because if you can't do your research properly, how can you possibly come up with the, the correct case citations to make your arguments in, in your cases? There's a lot of people that think, uh, oh, well, all I got to do is just go find some, uh, uh, you know, words that I like out of a case, and that that's going to suffice to make an argument to, to uh, somebody's calling me. Uh, to uh, make a good argument in, in your case. And that's not true because you have to understand what the ruling is in a case. It isn't just certain dicta. Dicta is the rest of the writing uh, during the uh, time that you read through that pleading other than the ruling by the court. The ruling by the court has to be on point for you to be able to use it and have the court pay attention to it. You have to understand what is controlling law. You have to understand what is persuasive. And uh, I'll touch on more and more of these things and, as we go on. But uh, uh, again, I would urge people to get this book if you can, if you like to read, uh, especially because there's a lot of reading here. This is what, about 800 pages. It's Legal Research and Writing for Paralegals, and uh, it's out of the Aspen College series. I found this on Amazon. Uh, it's a wealth of information, and uh, I'm going to be reading some in here because they tell you things about how to use Westlaw and, 
and some of the other services that are out there. So if you can learn how to utilize some of that stuff and get some training on that so that if you happen to go to a library where they've got Westlaw uh, available, a legal library, you'll know how to use it when you get there because you walking in and having that at your disposal, being able to sit down at the desk and having absolutely no clue how to go about utilizing it, uh, isn't going to get you very far. So uh, there's a lot of information that uh, we'll be able to learn. In fact, I've actually I get li- emails from the uh, Texas uh, State Law Library in Austin about Westlaw training that they have. The only problem is these training sessions they have you generally are continuing ed for attorneys. However, uh, people like myself can go to them, but they're only an hour. And they have various things. They have stuff for you know beginners. They have stuff for advanced, intermediate, uh, search, and stuff like that. But I just can't justify a uh, trip to a 200-mile each-way trip to Austin, Texas, just to go down there for one hour. If they had like a four-hour class or something like that, I would definitely uh, consider doing that. But uh, there's all sorts of resources out there for you guys if you want to take advantage of them. Well, we're uh, a little over an hour into the call tonight, and uh, we don't have uh, a whole lot of people with us, which is absolutely no surprise. Um, One more time, I'm going to ask if there's anybody that has any questions that they want to go over. We uh, had some from Pam. Uh, We've got somebody uh, that was on here from North Shore, Massachusetts, but uh, they didn't ask a question unless that was... uh, our buddy that was on before. So bottom line is, uh, last call, if you don't have a question, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up early tonight. There isn't any reason to sit here and and just talk. Uh, I figured on having this being a short call. I hope everybody has had a great week, and I hope you've had a wonderful uh, holiday weekend that you do reflect back on what this day actually is for. But... uh, uh, Terry will be on her call. Uh, just as a reminder to everybody, she is not sending out a reminder email for her call this week. So if you can't remember her call in number or whatever, you better go back and check your past emails so that you can see uh, what the call-in information is. And she will be on the call on Wednesday night. She told me she would definitely be on that. Now, we do have somebody that popped their hand up here. And Calico. What do you got for me tonight? I just want to. Am I am I in the northern district? Uh, I just no. pulled it up, and it looks like I'm in the northern district. I just I found so much information on this website. I could be here until tomorrow. <laughs> what website was that? The Northern District Court of Texas. Oh, oh okay. I, just, I must have printed out uh, how many forms? I must have fifty pages printed out here. Oh, there's uh, well. Uh, what county are you in? Uh, Washington. Uh, this, what district court is Washington? Washington County, County, Texas. In okay, what? Um, I mean, what's the word <laughs> federal? I just See, all this up. Yeah. Well, I here again. Uh, what federal district court is Washington, Washington County, Texas in? Uh, That's where I looked up. It looks like I'm in the northern. 
uh, United States District Court for the Western District of Texas. Okay, and I'm going to see. Court convenes in San Antonio's divisions, Pecos and Waco's. I've got United States District Court, Northern District of Texas. That's what came up when I put in Brenham, Texas. Uh huh. And because Brenham's in Washington County. Okay. Well, then uh, you you double check your stuff there. It would uh, appear that uh, that's probably you, where you said that you're going to litigate. That's a crummy part of Texas. I got to move. Well, no, it's uh, the uh, uh, the the rules in the uh, northern district are a little more uh, uh, onerous than where I am. I mean, all the courts are different. I mean, if you want onerous rules, go to California. Oh boy. No, no, no. Thanks, I passed. <laughs> I mean, no, I no, just, no. We just, we don't want to do that. No, I I just pulled up this whole thing. This is for the northern district, and just going across, it's got court information, judges. Rules and orders, filing, resources, free form, attorneys, jurors, pro se forms, and I mean you can go down. I just printed out just just for my myself, just some forms just that I can be familiar with. But I'm telling you what, though, they've got the world on this website. Well, most of them do have a, a tremendous uh, amount of information on them. I mean, just and I uh, just. Under pro se forms, we have instructions for non-prisoners, and then they have a motion and questionnaire, and then they've got an emotion, a motion for appointment of counsel. Uh, I mean, to withdraw, and on and on and on appeals and yeah. So I just, I just I just printed out some of them. So I'm not printing out everything that's there, but things that may that I might be able to use, like a complaint. You know what I needed to ask you? You know uh, when you're doing the court case, you know the funny little, um, like, backward D's? You gave it to me one time. If you think I, I know where it is after this no, say, say this again. You're... You know the funny little backwards, you know, when they're doing the the legal documents? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm lost. Okay. I'm... All right, when they're doing a legal document, it looks like two little E. I'm trying to think if they printed anything on Oh, the section sign? Yes. Could you send me that information again? What, on uh, how, to, how to make that? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's in your symbols in Word, and the very simple way to do it is on your keyboard. Yeah. Hold down, hold down the Alt key. Wait a second. Wait a second. Let me let me write myself. Of course, we can't find the pen now. <laughs> Why should I? <laughs> I mean, we're buried in papers. I think I have that book that you're talking about because there was just so much information there under all of that. Um, legal stuff. Very interesting. I think I have a book. I don't know which, but it wasn't cheap. Okay, what did you say? Hold on. Oh. 
I use this all the time, and all of a sudden now I'm getting a different symbol. All, you know, I have. I, it may be on my other computer. I have a higher. Um, no. I don't know. All right. Now, what? Here's going to be another good example okay. of the use of what? What do I advocate using on a regular basis? Google, right? Oh. Well, what's it called? I can't tell if I want the two little funny E symbols. <laughs> okay. All uh, right. I'm just I'm looking here. Section symbol is you hold down the alt key zero one six seven. Wait a second, is the section key? No, alt, alt key, the one no, right no, next to your you spacebar. Okay, but what did you say you called it? It's the section symbol. You know, like forty seven USC section two two seven when we're talking section symbol. Okay. Okay. So it's alt, alt key and what? You hold down the Alt key and just type yeah. 0167. Type 0167. Yeah. Just uh, what I do when I when I come and I've got to put that in a document, I just hold down the Alt key and I go over in my uh, numerical keypad, 0167, and blink, it puts it right where the cursor is. Perfect, because I thought, you know what I found? Remember the, the ages ago when I, when I had to go to court? And you gave me all that information. Don't talk. Don't do this. Don't deny. <laughs> deny, deny, deny. Deny. Yeah, and act like Hillary Clinton. And she's starting this all over again. I have no knowledge. Now we have a new one. I have no knowledge. I have no knowledge. We didn't deny it. We just don't have any knowledge of it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, well that's, that's always good to Yeah, well, Hillary so doesn't have that. much knowledge about much anything. Selectively. No, she's not. Well, she does. She says, I, I could be first woman president. Please take me in the backyard and shoot me. Yeah. Well, we could have lots of discussion about her, but we oh, won't. Oh, I don't want to have a Dave, I have a book. That, yeah. I have two books that was written by the Secret Service on yeah. her. She's scary. She's really oh, scary. Oh, believe me. I, <laughs> oh, she's, she's more than scary. No, she's, she's more too scary, and yes. I can see why Bill catches her on like he does because she likes little girls. Yeah. On, just yeah. on that merit, they ought to shoot yeah. her. Yeah. Well, like I said, we're not going to get into that. That's not what we're on, doing on this call. Okay. So. I know it's the Fourth of July. We need to be yep. civil. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, we have somebody else to raise the hand quick here, and we'll take Yvonne's uh, question. Evening. Thank you. I will. You too. Okay, Enjoy thanks. the rest of the weekend, as short as it is. <laughs> thanks a lot. Okay. All right. Yvonne, you are unmuted. It's all yours. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Happy I'm still alive and kicking, and uh, I'm, I'm here, just like I always am on a Monday night. We've had a thin crowd tonight, which is no surprise, but that's okay. I'm here in case anybody has questions, like uh, Pam in California did. So 
you know, as long as we even help one person, um, then it's been worth uh, being here. Yeah, I expected Sharon to be on the call tonight because she has her MSJ tomorrow afternoon. Oh, okay. And she wrote me um, like 2 o'clock yesterday morning, and I wrote her back, and I haven't heard from her. Oh, jeez. She's probably busy, busy, busy. Studying and practicing. Yeah. But, you know, thinking about some of the things going on there, I was wondering, could you clarify for me how do you how do you defend yourself in a state case without um, jeopardizing your um, claims for a federal case? Well, you just don't bring you don't bring them up uh, as an argument. If you bring if you bring that stuff up and you bring it as uh, uh, make issues of it in your state case, then you've drawn it in there, and that's very simply how you avoid it. You whatever your claims were that you brought in your state case, you stay strictly with those. You don't get into anything like you know FDCPA that has anything to do with you know their bad behavior. Or, or this or that, or you know the FCRA or anything, because that's the kind of stuff you would bring in your your federal claim. The moment you bring it up in the state court, and then the the court uh, puts something in there, you know, a, a ruling in in some form or fashion regarding uh, your arguments about uh, you know their attempts to collect the debt, and you know because they did this, they violated the law. That that's where you tie it in, and that's where you screw yourself, so to speak. Okay, I think that's what she did. Well, we've we've talked about that before, and it appears that that's what she uh, she did in her state case. And I believe there was some language. She said something about there was some language in her state case uh, in the ruling that uh, mentioned that. I'm not sure. I don't know that to be sure, but that's. Right. From my recollection, I'm thinking that that was there. And if that's the case, then uh, I don't think she's got a lot to stand on there. And that's what's so critical about that is you just got to be careful where you make your arguments. If you're in state court, stick with the, the <clears throat> issues that are uh, brought up there. Don't don't get yourself involved in, in any of the other stuff. You know, the, the things that you want to go after them for, you have to reserve that strictly for your federal court. Okay, that's what I was thinking because I need to get a paper together. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess you just don't do any defenses, then, right? You don't do any. You don't use the fact that they violated the FDCPA as an argument um, for something else in a state claim. Okay. You have to argue strictly. You know, um, did you know? Is their affidavit uh, improper? You know, do, should their affidavit say in in uh, support of an alleged debt defective? You know, you need to discredit that, get it thrown out, so that they don't have the proof they need to uh, uh, prove their case, or you know, show that there's a faulty assignment, or you know, they didn't in. in uh, they haven't provided uh, to the court everything that's necessary according to the statute to, to prove a debt. 
but you don't go into oh well you know they they tried to collect the wrong amount from me and no that's that's getting into FDCPA right well you I've... really got you really got to stay focused on what are the the issues you know you you can't you just can't cross those lines you just can't right well i i just suggested to her I think she wrote me 2 o'clock Saturday morning. So yeah, you she, said 2 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Obviously, she burned the midnight oil working on her stuff. She is. I, I didn't see it till later, but she said she had just received um, their reply to her opposition. Mm-hmm. So I just suggested, I don't know if she got it like Friday or if it was Thursday, but yeah. I... I referred her to the rules to see when it, when something had to be filed before the hearing. Yeah, yeah. So, they, they, I, there's certain rules there. You know, you can't, uh, you can't uh, file something uh, and then have a hearing immediately afterwards. I mean, there are rules that govern that. Right. So that was the first thing I suggested to her without me even reading the docs. Yeah. So hopefully hopefully she did that. Yeah, hopefully. Well, thank you. I just wanted to be clear on that. Okay. So that helped me. Thanks, Dave. All right. You're very welcome. All right, everybody. I'm going to wrap it up for tonight. Thanks to everybody that uh, joined me tonight. Uh, I hope everybody had a wonderful day uh, and, a, and a good weekend it's back to the rat race tomorrow of course and it is tuesday tomorrow and that means that there's an open call on block talk radio and that'll be at eight o'clock tomorrow night and of course uh then there's terry's call she will be back there'll be no call reminder on uh tuesday that she normally sends out so if if you don't get a reminder that's why because she's out in the woods She's out kayaking and having a bunch of fun, and I don't blame her a bit. She's put in a lot of work and time, and uh, she needs a break. As the old saying goes, you need a break today, and she's getting it. So with that said, thanks, everybody. I hope everybody has a great rest of the evening, and you'll probably hear my voice on Blog Talk Radio tomorrow night because I plan on being there. Good night, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.